0: So we've been in a series on the book of Ephesians the last couple of months. We're going to detour. I thought we were going to be there this week, and then some things happened this week that I was talking to the elders, and I thought, you know, it might be a good idea to address what is happening in our country from a biblical perspective. So we're going to talk about politics today. My first encounter with politics was actually when I first moved out of my house. I mean, I was, most, I was kind of aware of what was going on, presidential races, ballot initiatives. I, could, I kind of understood what was happening, but I wasn't tuned in. Didn't really know what I believed myself. Then I moved in with a guy, with, a, with a, a roommate. I didn't know him all that well, but he was a good guy. He was a believer, and he had a spare room for cheap. That was the main thing. So I gathered my stuff I remember going over to his house, bringing it all in, and I walked in, and the first thing I saw, I had not noticed when I had first visited the place. Of course, I had come just to see it, check it out, but when I actually walked in, I had given him my money to pay for the first month's rent, have all my stuff there. I had not noticed before a picture that was on the wall. Somehow I had missed a giant portrait of, Of Ronald Reagan on his wall. A 20 year old college student with a giant picture of Ronald Reagan, the former president. And I knew enough to know who that was. And I remember thinking to myself, I have made a huge mistake. This person must be crazy. Am I going to die? I'm not joking. That's what I thought. I did not die. And it turned out that he became a fast, long term friend. And those years that I lived with him were eye-opening. He loved politics from when he was even before, before he was even a teenager. He loved the whole process, every part. And he taught me that I should be interested in it too, in a sense, love it. I can't say that I love politics like he did. He was literally running for office by the time he was 18 years old. And I did def- definitely not, and today do not agree with him about everything. But he taught me that this enterprise, this thing that we do in our country called politics, it's important. And you could even say that it is vital for a flourishing society. And that is hard to say right now. That is hard to say today. Whatever side you're on, however you voted last Tuesday, these last 18 months have been difficult. The fractures in our country, the fractures across the evangelical church are real and serious. The arguing and fighting and outrage has sapped our hope. Politics does not seem to be important enough to go through this, let alone vital. It seems, in a sense, to be killing us. So I was driving up 495 on Friday. I was going to go kind of outline my thoughts, write my sermon, and I saw there was an accident ahead, and it had just happened. But when I drove past, it wasn't just an accident, it it was a fire, a car fire. Someone's, the front end of their car was, was smoldering, was smoking. The fire department had just put it out, and the entire front end was nearly gone, burned up. Now, they had gotten out, but as I'm driving past, I thought, you know... That kind of feels like it does today. That car feels like America right now. Things do not feel good. It feels a little bit like things are on fire. Politics is on fire. Relationships is on fire. Maybe our church is on fire. I want to get out get out of the car this morning. Take stock see the damage, assess what happened, and figure out as a people what to do next. Because as Christians, there is always a next. There is always hope. And so this morning, my plan is to lay out a series of points. This isn't a traditional sermon by any stretch. But I do want to see how God, how the Bible approaches politics and how we accordingly should respond. Now, I've never done a sermon like this before. I know that I will not speak to every issue and concern, but I think my hope and the elders' hope is that just having the conversation is going to be good, as a good first step for the sake of the world, for the sake of our witness to the world, for the sake of our own unity in Christ. And my main hope is that by peering into this thing that looks like it's on fire, we will see the gospel afresh this morning. But let us pray before we do. We need God's help. God, thank you for your abundant mercies. We know that you are sovereign and that you are caring for us even now. And we need your help. God, there are many people who are concerned today. And not just concerned for the direction of our country, but concerned for the church. And I am one of those people. It feels like we're at a point of division and fracture. And so we need to address this. We need to be reminded of your truth, but we will not hear it. We will not believe it. We will not be called to the radical nature of the gospel and all that it values and all that it calls us to, unless you are working in our lives and our hearts. Would you help us today? I pray for the people who need to be shown their blind spots, including me. May we have our eyes open, our ears open. May our hearts be enlarged, even for our enemies. That is what you call us to, and you must do it. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so when I started writing this out, I think I had 18 points. So mercifully for you, I think I got it down to six, okay? And I actually have PowerPoint today. We're going to be all technological this morning. The first point this morning, the world is a political place. The world is a political place. And what I mean is I think that in a sense we cannot get beyond politics. We cannot get beyond this enterprise that we call politics. And that's because we as a people, as a human race, we want to exist in harmony together. And so I'm thinking about politics in its purest form. I'm going root level here. The word politics comes from the very old Greek word politikos, that it means of or relating to citizens. Citizens in a community, a state, a kingdom. Politics is the process by which we, that we describe, that that we go through to order ourselves. Politics brings disparate peoples together. In its purest form, we might say that politics exists to form a flourishing society politics is necessary because finding what works is not easy. And you know that. Forming a flourishing society involves people. And people are complex, varied, and very, very flawed. And so answers do not come easy. The goal, I think, of politics is good, true, even wonderful. But the road to get there... Not so much. And it is often more art than science, of course. And it is changing, shifting, adapting. We are always trying to get better as a people, as a society. We are trying to hold on to the things that are good and jettison the things that are not good. Politics asks the question, how do we as a people form a society where we can flourish? Where we are constrained in a way that brings justice to the most people. That brings peace to the most people. Now, that is a good thing. And I think that we can say a godly thing. I think that God shines down. He, he approves and acknowledges of at least that pure fact that politics brings us together. In fact, I think it is from him. First Peter 2.13 says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now we're going to talk more about what that means in a second, the broader point. But I think that we can say at least now with conviction that God acknowledges and approves of our politics. He approves of kings and kingdoms, judges and peoples, emperors and nations. Yes, politics is flawed. I'm not saying that it's perfect. I'm not saying that when we join into this that we do it well. But I think that God shines down on it at some level on our effort. He approves of our living peacefully under the rule of a nation or a king. He desires that we would all seek together a just flourishing society. Our first point is simple. The world is a political p- place by God's design. Okay, point 2. Point two, God is sovereign over politics. God does not just approve. He does not just shine down on our politics. He is sovereign over it. He is the true king. And that's what we've been singing all, all morning. He is the highest ruler and Lord. And so one of the most glorious and I think hopeful truths in the Bible is that God is the God over politics. He is the God over leaders and parties and ideas. He is completely, perfectly sovereign in elections and courts and white houses. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how bad the leaders get, no matter how bad or how deeply and far a society devolves, we as Christians take heart in the fact that nothing comes about apart from the will of God. His sovereign, perfect will. Romans 13 is the classic text on this. And man, if you take it to heart, it is radical. Listen, every, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. He's just doubling down on what Peter already said. God is God even over our politics. Think about when. This is, this is my favorite part about this passage. Think about when and where Paul is writing this. He's writing this way back in the first century. In Rome. Imprisoned under the emperor. The emperor. We as a people do not know what living under rule like that is like. True oppression. True brutality. And Paul is writing to men and women who are living this out every day in fear and terror, true fear and terror. And what does he say to them? Brothers and sisters, God is God. He is in charge. He is sovereign. He has put your emperor in power. He has put your leaders, your governors into place. Now I think this should stir up two things in us. The first thing is respect. I really do. We must, at some level, respect our authorities. And we respect them because they come from God himself, not because they are great. Our rulers, our presidents, our kings, our queens, they come from God, and that is why we respect them. I say to my kids often, when, they, when, they are, when they're talking back to me, when they don't listen to me, I say, you have to respect me. You have to respect mom. And I say pretty often, it's not because I am great. I'm not. I am flawed. It's because God has put me in charge of you, and you must respect him. I think at some level, we must respect our institutions. Similarly, they are not perfect. No, we do not need to agree with them completely. Notice that that does not mean that we should not seek to change what is happening and get the person that we want in office in office. But it does mean that we offer a measure of respect, that we heed authority, that we live peacefully and peaceably underneath our governance. Friends, God has given us our president, our soon-to-be president, our senators, our house reps, our governors, our state reps, our mayors, our city councils, and down the line. We live respectfully, but also hopefully, also hopefully. Is this not what should come to our minds when someone comes into office? Whether your person got in or not. Whether you are feeling despair. or elation, No matter what happens, God is in control. How many men and women felt tremendous fear and sadness when Barack Obama became president? God put him in control. How many men and women today are mourning Donald Trump's ascendancy to the presidency? God will probably put him into power. May we have great hope. No matter how bleak it gets, God is in charge. He is sovereignly orchestrating all things for our good. Now, what is our good? I just want to say this at the end here, and this is important. I do not think that our good ultimately is a perfect flourishing society here on earth. That is not God's point. It's probably why things are not going so well down here. God does not mainly want us to have a a utopia here on earth. God is sovereign over politics so that we will not be satisfied in politics. I think he is ordering things so that we The world may turn to him. Leaders fail us. Policies fail us. Economies fail us. So that we may humbly repent and turn to him. Whatever the election outcome is, God is screaming to the world. He is calling out to the world, repent and turn to me. God is sovereign over our politics. Point three, our ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus. Our ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus. So you know what Peter and Paul are saying. They're saying at some level that you should give your allegiance to your country. You should, at some level, heed what they're saying. Heed their authority. Listen to them. Follow them. God has put earthly leaders into power for the good of people. And so we as Christians should follow this command. And and yet, there's always a yet with this. And yet, we must remember that as Christians, we maintain Dual citizenships. We have two citizenships. Yes, one here on earth and for many of us in the United States. But the other one is not of this world. It is in heaven. We maintain both of our allegiances. But our ultimate allegiance is with the main kingdom and the main king, Jesus Christ. Christ, we are always asking and answering this question who is our king? With whom will we give our ultimate allegiance? Now, Jesus deals with this. You probably know this. Jesus deals with this when he is uh, he's sitting there, he's minding his own business, and some teachers of the law come to him, right? And actually the Herodians and the Pharisees, these guys never get along, but you know what? In order to catch Jesus to stop his ascendancy, we're going to go after him. And we're going to try to trick him. And so they go up to him and they say, hey Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And their question, it is crafty, it's pretty ingenious, because if he says yes, then it sounds as though... Jesus is is allied with Caesar, that his allegiance is to Caesar and not to God. But if he says no, then he is advocating disobedience, unjust defiance. But Jesus is Jesus. He will not be trapped easily. And he says to them, show me a coin used for the tax. and they reach into their pockets and they pull one out and listen just that act alone just that act alone shows that he is the king and they are not their hypocrisy is instantly revealed in, re- in producing that roman coin they showed themselves to be willing beneficiaries of caesar's system but not contributors to it They were benefiting from something they at the same time rejected. They were having their cake and eating it too. Where is their allegiance? Simply by making them pull that coin out, he undermined them. But listen, the question remains, right? Should a person pay the tax? Should a Jew, a God-fearing person, pay the tax to Caesar? And so Jesus asks them, so you have that coin. Who is on it? Whose inscription is on the coin? Whose likeness? And they reply, Caesar. Caesar is on it. And Jesus is okay. Well then, here is your answer. You should give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And they would not have gotten it the first time. This probably would have been a time bomb as they walk away and it would have gone off later. So i he is saying that I I am supposed to give to Caesar this coin because his likeness is on it. Well, then what do I give to God? The principle must be that I give back what his imprint is on, what his likeness is on. Well, what is that? His imprint, his likeness is on me. I have been made in his image. Humans do not give God coins. Humans, Christ followers, give God themselves. Scott Saul says of this God is your king. Jesus specifically is your king. Your first allegiance should be to him, the true Son of God, and the one always, the once and always king of every square inch. Of the universe. With Christ as king. As citizens of his kingdom. This changes everything for us. We do not prize power. We do not prize being first. In a world that is embroiled in kind of this Darwinian struggle for power. We prize weakness. We are ambassadors. Citizens of a kingdom. Where the last will be last. And the first. The, sorry. The last will be first. And the first will be last where the meek will inherit the earth. This allegiance to Christ changes our outlook. Our commitment to Christ changes how we view and engage with politics and serve our neighbor with love. Listen, friends, is this how you voted on Tuesday? With Christ as your king? Is this how you thought and deliberated and argued for the last 18 months? Is this how you have comported yourself in the last few days since President-elect Trump's election? Our ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus. Thanks be to God. Point four, point four. We must not make politics into an idol. We must take care to not make politics into an idol. This is obviously flowing from the previous point. But it's the answer to the question, why is politics so messy, I think. Why does politics lead to the worst fights, the greatest despair? And I think it's very simple. It's because we take what is good in politics and we make it ultimate. We take what is good and right. We take what is good and right in politics and we make it into A God, leaders and and ideologies and governments and parties. We say, my greatest life, my best life, can only be fulfilled. It can only be made complete if my candidate gets in. My party, my idea, it must be the ruling one. The winning one. But if not, if I do not win, if I lose, then I lose everything. Everything. That is what is going on in our hearts. Politics has a way of making us trust it and not God, doesn't it? Tim Keller wrote this, I think, six or eight years ago, way before this contentious election happened. He says, One of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. When we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. We do not say, what a shame, how difficult. But rather, this is the end. There is no hope. He goes on, this may be a reason why so many people now respond to U.S. political trends in such an extreme way. When either party wins an election... A certain percentage of the losing side talks openly about leaving the country. They become agitated and fearful for the future. They have put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that once was reserved for God and the work of the gospel. And he concludes... When their political leaders are out of power, they experience a death. They believe that if their policies and people are not in power, everything will fall apart. They refuse to admit how much agreement they actually have with the other party and instead focus on disagreement. The points of contention overshadow everything else and a poisonous environment is created. This is our opportunity to start thinking about our own hearts. Is this us? Do we, do you experience a death when your candidate does not get in? When your issue is cast aside? When your lifestyle, when your culture is called into question? But if Christ is our king, if he is truly our God, then, listen, not even politics will control us. If we have not made politics into an idol... Politics will not rule us, control us. Not even losing out on every idea, every election will cripple us. Listen, as Christians, as citizens in the kingdom of Christ, we are realistic. We are realistic. We are perfectly aware that politics and governments and ideas and leaders and policies, they do not save. We can do two things. We can have a ballot in one hand and keep Psalm 20 embedded deep within our hearts. What does it say? Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Now listen, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. What do you put in in place of chariots? And horses. What do we today? We must take it away. Give our allegiance back to Christ. If Christ is our King, we will hold loosely to affiliations to parties. If Christ is our King, we will not blindly and robotically follow one candidate. We will be willing to call them out or move our support for failed policies, practices, for failed character. If Christ is our King, we will be mindful of issues that we are not personally concerned about. If Christ is our King, we will not sinfully argue or fight. We will not cast stones at those we disagree with. There is no issue as important as our allegiance to Jesus. No leader is as important as Jesus Christ himself. Duke Kwan is a pastor in Washington, D.C., And he writes something that I found helpful. This is what he says. Christians should regularly experience discomfort within their own parties. How the issues are defined and what issues are and aren't tackled. You should never feel, he says, perfectly at home. If you have never affirmed or agreed with someone from a different political persuasion, you are probably following your party more than you are following Jesus. Christians should be more critical, he says, of their own party than the opposing party. Christians should occasionally make members of their own party mad. What do your politics say about you? Whom do you serve? We must take care to not make politics into an idol. Point five. As Christians aligned with the king, we are free to serve the world with justice and with peace. Hear that again. As Christians align with the King, we are free to serve the world with justice and peace. Only when we have made Christ central, only when you do not serve chariots and horses and presidents and parties, can you truly, faithfully serve the world well because then you are not serving politics, but Christ. And when you are serving Christ, your thoughts leave you. They they leave your selfish nature. And they start going to other people. You seek their justice. For the most amount of people. You seek their justice. Maybe even over your own. You work for their shalom. Their all encompassing peace and flourishing. As Christ followers we will seek many things. Things like the welfare of the unborn. Those maligned and disadvantaged because of their race the men and women who cannot afford to buy health insurance, the children suffering in inadequate schools in our town, the many, many men, women, and children who suffer under poverty every day, and every person who needs the loving care and salvation of Christ. If we are aligned with Christ, we are freed to serve the world with justice and peace. Now, I want to give you two practical things. One is a practice, and then one is kind of a a principle. The practice is very simple. It's very biblical. The first thing that maybe you need to do as a Christian in order to get your heart in the right place when it comes to politics is start praying for your leaders. Pray for your leaders. No matter who they are, what they stand for, what party they are in, or what they do, friends, you are commanded to pray for them. Paul says this without reservation, 1 Timothy 2. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And then he says what? For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Have you been praying for President Obama these last eight years? Have you taken time by yourself with your family to pray for him? Will you commit to praying for President Trump? I think on the one hand, they need it, right? That is a hard job. No thank you to that. I would not want to do what they're doing. They need our prayers. But I think the main purpose is that our hearts would be changed. That by praying for them, that we would be humbled. That we would be empathetic with what they were doing, that we will not demonize them or dismiss them too quickly. And I wonder that if we start at the top, how that will trickle down into other areas of our life as we assess politics in our own hearts. Pray for your leaders. So that's the practice. What's the principle? The greatest principle, we said this last week, is to love your neighbors as yourself. Love your neighbors as yourself. This is how Michael Weir puts it. Michael Weir. Politics should be a forum for Christians to express their love for their neighbors. While others pursue naked self-interest in politics, you can be someone who considers the good of your community, all of your community, when you head to the voting booth. And I would just add, when you engage in politics at any level, from school board meetings all the way up to voting for president. And I think that this will reveal that we are a Christian community. It will reveal how we are different than other communities because if this is our life, if we are serving our neighbors as ourselves, then we are not self-serving. But that is so much of the problem with politics today. It is self-serving. We are focused too much on our own issues. Naked self-interest, Michael Weir says. But when we go from what will this do for me to What will this do for my brother, for my sister, for my fellow citizen? Then we have started to walk in line with the gospel. It will mean assuming the best about them. This is what um, having love for our brothers and sisters, for our citizens. It will mean assuming the best about people. Because our, our culture has taught us the opposite. It has taught us what? To hate our enemies, right? To hate our political enemies. The world has has taught us that we should not just oppose those those we disagree with, but that we should categorize them as evil. We cannot do this. We must begin, the gospel calls us to begin by thinking well of people. Do you know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13? We forget 1 Corinthians 13 because it's the marriage passage, but it is about our lives. He says this, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Unfortunately, we dismiss people before ever getting to know them, before understanding why they voted the way they did, why an issue is so important to them. The gospel says, flip that on its head. You must, as a Christian, go to them and assume the best about them. Now, embedded in this is listening to them and understanding them. One of the great tragedies of this last year has been a reluctance to give a listen to what the other side is saying. And listen, I have seen that in the church itself. We have stopped listening to each other. We have stopped trying to climb in the shoes of our brother and sister in Christ and saying, why do you think the way you do? That is a tragedy to me. We are saying things like, I can't believe he voted for him. I can't believe that she's so angry that Trump won. Mark Galley wrote a piece this week in Christianity Today. You should go find it. It's brilliant. Mark Galley, he says this. In times like these, we tend to imagine the worst in one another. The left imagines that Trump supporters, since they seem to give a pass to his racist and misogynistic comments, must not care about Hispanics or African Americans or women. The right assumes that the left has simply gone soft on abortion and religious freedom, not to mention human sexuality. Each think the other is blind to how their candidate had little respect for the rule of law. And then he says, and of course the third party advocates place the pox on both houses. That is what we're living in right now. That is what we're dealing with and even inside our Christian communities. And so we have to ask ourselves, what would it look like if we followed the gospel Path? What would it look like if we walked in line in accordance with the good news of Jesus Christ? If we did not care mainly about the politics of the day, but the love of God for us that we are to give out to our neighbors in need. I think very simply that we will become generous and open, quiet and inquisitive. We will seek to truly understand those we disagree with. I'm going to twist the knife a little bit right here. For those of you who are excited about a Trump presidency, and you're excited that he's in office at some level, the gospel demands that you understand the fear and the sadness that many feel today now that he is going to be president. For them, Trump represents a step back in some of the most important issues our country has ever faced, and they face on a daily basis. Racism, misogyny, immigration, limited health care. Let's just take racism, for example. I know this is a hard subject. I know it is amazing that we are still having to deal with this today. But you must understand that the feelings of black and Hispanic people and other people, minorities, feel great fear and sorrow today. And I think that we have to ask the question, can you blame them? The words and actions taken by President-elect Trump were of a sort that we have not heard or seen for some time. I reached out to black friends this week, trying to get their response. I needed to climb into their shoes. I didn't hear anyone say they were excited. That doesn't mean that there was not a single African-American who wasn't, but the ones that I talked to, they were not. One friend said very specifically to me, he said, I fear that the words words that that President-elect Trump used will make racism more normal in America. The gospel does not ask you to agree with their take on things, but it does ask you to understand them, to check first the log in your own eye before taking the speck out of theirs, to climb inside their stories and circumstances, to empathize with them, and even to consider taking on their cause as your own, truly to love them, For those who are on the other side, for those who mourn and fear Trump's presidency, the gospel demands that you seek to understand the excitement and hope, yes, hope, that many feel now that he will become president. For many, Trump represents a good and helpful change. Many Americans, and you saw this in the election, many Americans have felt left behind voiceless for too long. For the first time, men and women feel as though they have someone to speak for them, someone who will maybe hopefully restore lost areas of our economy, someone who will help curb or even end abortion. The gospel does not ask you to agree with or take on things, but it does ask you to understand them to check the log in your own eye before seeing and pulling out the speck in theirs, to climb inside their life stories and circumstances, and to truly empathize with them and consider maybe even taking on their cause as your own, truly to love them. And for everyone in between these two poles, the gospel calls us to assume the best, to listen and understand, we as Christians, aligned with Christ, our allegiance is with Christ. We have been freed, freed to serve the world with justice and peace. Last point this morning. Last point this morning. As the God, as the body of Christ, our highest aim must be unity and service to one another in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a mouthful, but I'm going to say it again. As the body of Christ, our highest aim must be unity and service to one another in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Honestly, this is the main reason why I'm preaching this this morning. All the other points are important, but the main reason is this one. This is what I felt this morning. I think for the first time, and maybe it's been happening, but it's the first time I have really felt it, that politics could upend our unity. That politics for the first time could fracture our church and stop what we are trying desperately to do here on planet Earth. And so I just want to say, I just want to say two things. One's a small thing and one's a big thing. And, and this small thing I'm going to lead with and it may be my opinion, but I, I've been thinking about this a lot and I, I want to relay this to you. The small thing is that I think that we need to be gracious to people and not assume too much about the vote that they cast on Tuesday. I say that because I think that voting is inherently difficult. It is a complex thing and it may not say what you think it does. The people that reasons voted for are numerous and complex. And I think that we can make a distinction between an enthusiastic support for and simply I voted for. Again, I'm not saying that you must agree with their vote, but I, to assume terrible things about them because they voted one way or the other, it seems to me to be ungracious. And I think the post-election that we can be gracious to each other today is a new day. And that's a small thing. And here's the big thing. And it's very simple. Where there are differences, and there are differences. Where we have disunity and in, infighting. Please, friends, for the sake of the gospel, please come together. Come together. There is no issue apart from the very gospel itself. That we should hold on to if it means losing our common bond. We should let it go for unity's sake. Lay it all down that we may stay together. This is Paul's hope and his prayer to the Philippian church. This is what he said. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Amen and hallelujah. But that is our call to be as one in one spirit, concerned about one enterprise, the proclamation of the gospel of free grace. And so we must expect in our church nothing less than unity and love. It will not always be easy, but on this side of the gospel, on this side of the cross, we can expect, we must expect, charity, grace, unity, and love. And so I say have conversations. Do not be afraid. Talk things through. Listen more than you speak. Learn more than you teach. Speak when you do with generosity and care. And pray together for each other, for the country, for the repentance of all people. Brothers and sisters, our example is Jesus Christ himself. He died for the sake of our unity. He died that we would be a people who would come into heaven linked arm in arm. He is our leader. He who did not seek power for himself, but was emptied of it. He who died praying for his worst enemy. He who was crucified, the king of kings, in weakness. May we, as a people, follow his lead. May we learn from his example. May we serve him and him alone, and may the world see it. Let's pray. God, all I can say is that we offer ourselves before you. Prayer is not just the act of, com- of, of communicating with you, but communicating our dependence, our great need. And so I end the way I began by saying, we need your help. All the words in the world are nothing apart from the Spirit's imparting work. Unless he is seeing to it that our hearts will be changed, we will stay angry. We will stay outraged. We will stay enemies. And so God, would you help us? God, would you help us? Would you help us as a people to come together, whatever our positions, whatever candidate we supported in this election? God, would you help us? May we love each other. May we take on each other's causes. May we learn from each other. May we be generous in our speech. And God, I end by praying for our country. Now, we do not do that enough. We're going to change that right now. We'll begin praying weekly for what is happening in our world, and especially in our nation. Oh, Lord, we need your help. We need your sovereign care. The president now, President Obama, needs your help. He has work yet to do. President-elect Trump has a lot of stuff on his plate he's got to deal with. Sovereignly help him in every other area of government and politics. God, we pray that you would work. That you would work justice and peace into our land. And in all things may they see you. In all things may you be glorified. And may they see their need of Jesus Christ. That's all we can ask and we do so humbly. We do so humbly aligning ourselves with you, Jesus the King of kings and Lord of lords forever and ever. In your name we ask this. Amen.